Hello, everybody. Welcome again to the Doomer Optimism Podcast. Uh, today, we have a special guest host, um, <laughs> Nicholas McKay. We have a special guest, Phoebe Tickle. Uh, why don't we start, Nicholas? Uh, why don't you introduce yourself? And then we'll have Phoebe introduce herself. Yeah, thanks, Jason. Really appreciate it. Uh, uh, so Nicholas McKay, I'm kind of the founder and uh, head wrangler of uh, Eclectic Spacewalk. Um, so basically, uh, Eclectic Spacewalk, I kind of came up with of seeing, uh, you know, how the Earth can be seen from space and what kind of that means for general culture, thought processes and stuff. And so I just have been making almost like a multimedia platform uh, that, you know, went out to Jason's uh uh, homestead in September and had them on the podcast. Um, and yeah, like, uh, Ashley Colby as well. So been kind of in the, in the mix of things, writing essays, doing podcasts, short films, but, uh, I have a background in TV film, uh, marketing management. And then now I am a grad student here in Munich at the, uh, technical university of Munich in the science and technology studies kind of program. So happy to be here and happy to, uh, talk with Phoebe and, and Jason about some, uh, DAOs, Web3, and blockchain. Great. Yeah, great to be here and nice to meet you both. And hi to everybody listening. My name is Phoebe and my background is a scientist. I started life in the what we call the wet sciences. So like in a lab, uh, working with chemicals and bacteria and that kind of thing. And so I started my life really in the technological space. I really think of the way my trajectory has gone is moving from the hardware of how we make systems change to the software, because essentially I started off thinking that um, working in renewables and biofuels and genetic engineering of bacteria and like tinkering with the mechanics of how we do things is actually what, what is necessary to create a life-sustaining and flourishing society for everyone. And then as I spent more time in science and started asking a lot of questions, I realized is actually the hardware already exists to already like 10x the quality of life for everybody in a very short space of time. If we had the software in terms of the mindsets, the um, the value systems, the, the economic systems, and, and those kind of invisible organizing systems that actually make us decide on what we do. Um, and so I've followed that for the last like eight, eight nine years through systems thinking Um everything from you know exploring how we can connect to nature and nature immersion nature connection but then not being quite satisfied by just like oh people should spend time in nature because actually the the kind of core of the issue goes a lot deeper than just physically spending time in nature it's really at the level of how we see the world what we believe is possible and that's led me to imagination and so i created started an organization called Moral imaginations in 2020. And the vision of moral imaginations is really around that systemic shift of mindset and perspectives. And it combines like values and imagination, which I think come together. Well, I believe it comes together in a powerful tool because if you have imagination without the values, you can end up creating things like bombs or techno utopian societies where, you know, nature no, no longer exists. But if you just have values, you lack that kind of creative energy of life to actually go from vision to action. So that's, um, that's where I find myself today. Nice. Nice. Um, I guess right off the bat, the first question I have is how do you think about how, you know, if we're, if we're trying to kind of envision alternative, uh, affordances, let's say, how do we make sure that it's, that, that is tied to biophysical realities, right? Laws of thermodynamics, um, you know, like how do we how do we make sure that we embed our creativity in actual viable structures, and we're not just kind of weaving pies in the sky? Mm, such a good question, um, and I think that that really links with this concept we've been throwing around of imagination activism, because actually, just imagination doesn't lead to anything changing. And I think the the really sh the long and short answer of it is um, focusing on doers, like. You have to you have to be a doer to actually like be part of creating the change. Like if we're just thinking and talking and coming up with concepts, but not actually testing those in reality, um, like I've learned that the hard way. Like when you actually start trying to create change, like 
the order of complexity of how much more difficult that is than like coming up with theories and and systems and concepts is is just such a huge order of magnitude. Um, so I'm not saying that the imagination piece and theory piece isn't as important because if we're just doing without that, then we've got the kind of world that we're in today. But as yeah, I think the converse of that is like we cannot get stuck in in just theorizing and imagining. Um, and anybody who's done any kind of manual labor or like permaculture will will know about this because life doesn't follow um the kind yeah when you when you try and like plant a garden you've got this like perfect idea of how it's all going to work and then suddenly you've got snails and you've got you know things that are going wrong and and so I think it's all about doing and iterating and um yeah what do you think Nicholas that's my that's my two cents no it's good uh but I I guess I following up on that point um like of getting your hands dirty and stuff I mean how have you kind of transitioned from you know going from a molecular you know kind of biology and signaling to to that you know where you're now you're focused on more regeneration I mean can you take us a little bit through of, of that kind of background of how you kind of saw because it seems like you were kind of alluding to you know we don't need to just philosophize in ivory towers and you know tell people what to do it's like yeah. it really is an iterative and you know kind of ongoing process. So how, how did you get there? And then how maybe you can give some insights of, you know, how that went or you know, mm-hmm. how you feel now? Yeah. Gosh, how I feel now. I feel like it's a constant interplay between the two. Um, but just to, to start with, like when I was in the lab, I was never a theoretical scientist. Like I wasn't a physicist. I was a, that's why I went into genetic engineering because actually even in science, you know, there, there are the scientists who are more foundational and just like on this quest for truth, which I find like extremely beautiful and, and incredibly important. And it's almost more akin to a form of artwork of like just being on that pursuit of truth and discovering, um, you know, discovering kind of new realities. And, um, but that always felt like really divorced for me from this desire I had since a young age to try and create a better world. And like, I think what ignited that for me was actually just the education system because I was just Mm. so appalled by like, yeah, by, by the other education systems. Like it, it was really clear to me immediately being in school that, you know, we were being kept in classrooms for like eight hours a day, learning about things from textbooks. And like, we could literally learn a lot of this stuff in like two or three hours, like the kind of high level important parts. And then the rest of it could be spent like actually doing things or visiting places or like being in the world. And so I don't know what, where that came from, but I always felt like highly dissatisfied with the, with the education system. And I think that's like what started to give me this sense of like, I guess there's some kind of, um, some people call it, talk about like development and, you know, these like developmental stages. Like I, I don't know. Um, I don't want to go down that route because it's a complex territory, but like there's some sort of shift that happened in me where I realized that like, I think um, in the guy who runs the store, Peter, Peter, um, yeah. Peter Lindbergh talks about like live players. Like I really remember that shift of mm-hmm. going from like, passively consuming the system I was in to being like, wait a second, like I'm 15 and I could see how I would do this differently. And, and like, why, why is that? Like, how, how is it that we're in a system that is like so clearly not optimized for what it's meant to be doing? And so that I was immediately seeing that gap between kind of theoretical purpose and actually what happens like in physical reality and, and practically speaking. Um, and so I've, I had this urge of, um, whatever I was doing in my, in my like work life, I wanted to contribute to bettering systems for everybody and bettering society. So as a scientist, I went down the track of genetic engineering and synthetic biology, um, in bacteria. So actually like tinkering with bacterial DNA to create biofuels and renewables. And actually some of that also included working on, um, the engineering part of like the bioreactors and like making that work. And actually like being a scientist and engineer really teaches you like how long things take, like, Mm -hmm. and it's, it's part of what also turned me off the path of staying in the lab because I could see that over like three years or a PhD, you might elucidate like one genetic mutation that might contribute to like 60 mutations that might lead like a metabolic pathway that might one day create biofuels, but then that's like 
stage one of 20 of creating biofuels. So it was like quite a good training and being like, wow, like things take a really long time. And I think like the systems change, like regenerative change field could probably learn a bit from academic science in that. Um, a lot of people frame academia as being very competitive and especially science as being super competitive, but actually what I found was there was a lot of like complex meta collaborations that happened in science because, you know, like with the images that just came out from um, the telescope, like showing us mm -hmm. these like incredible visions of, of galaxies. Like when you take on goals and ambitions that are big enough, you realize that you can't do them alone. And so yeah. doing the math, you're like, okay, if our lab tried to do this, it would take like 80 years. Um, so we have to partner with others to, to kind of divvy that up. So um, so going back to your point of like how I transitioned out of that, um, at a certain point, I had a PhD offer to go and work at the Scripps Institute in California and do, do a PhD at the Craig Venter Institute. And that was like probably going to be like six and a half, seven years. Like I'd just be coming out of the PhD now if I'd, um, if I'd accepted that. And it's like kind of wild to think about how much has happened since then. Um, but it was really then that I just felt like I need that I was having this growing sense of urgency as well, like being involved in the climate activism movement and like seeing some of the timelines and being like, wow, like if I do a PhD, I'll be graduating in like seven years time. And like the world might look completely different by then. Like I just can't operate on that kind of timescale. Um, and so I went from there to starting a, a startup with a friend from university. So that was the, the big jump for me. It was like, okay, let's, let's like try this entrepreneur thing. And we ran five day uh, transformative learning experiences with teenagers age 11 to 18. And so that was really about shifting mindsets. And that was where this kind of work all started. Um, and so that took us to Dubai and Hong Kong and Singapore. And so like we were, we were doing a lot of work out in the Middle East and in, in Asia. And yeah, that was like another baptism of fire of you know, you've got a plan of like how that's going to work and, and everything, you know, everything going wrong and, and um, yeah, being in a team of like first time entrepreneurs who have never done this before and like promising things and then having to like pull it off and, and being stressed and jet lagged and tired. So that was a great, a great and very stressful transition. Um, yeah. And then yeah, moving on from there, like it's just been this interplay of theory, practice, theory, practice. So learning about, you know, training with Joanna Macy, spending time at Schumacher College, learning from people like Daniel Wall and like regenerative systems and mm -hmm. being able to like build on my biological and ecology background, but with this kind of values driven kind of science, like, you know, Daniel's work and Joanna's work and other you know, e ecological thinkers and doers, like it's ecology, but it's also with this vision of a better world and like this, this kind of values driven design. So I've never, I never called myself a designer, but I guess that that was the shift, like from moving, a, from being a scientist to being a designer and an entrepreneur and trying to apply those values and visions and principles into like real world projects. Very nice. cool. Um, yeah, so maybe maybe that uh, we have you here. Um, we could we could uh, acquire your free consulting services for, for optimism. Uh, sure. Yeah, I, I want to know what kind of things you guys are up to. I mean, your listeners probably know. So yeah, well, it's interesting. I mean, I'll just talk about my own path, right? So I, I kind of was part of what's now called the Liminal Web. You know, I had mm -hmm. another podcast called Both End, which was which is great, but it was a lot more kind of the theoretical conversation. So the question I asked you earlier was actually, um, it's also a question that I've been asking myself for a couple of years. Um, and part of my shift towards, you know, helping to create kind of this Duber optimism community is, you know, the need for, for action, right? The need to build real, real communities, develop real skills. Um, you know, we focused a lot on on just like food production, sustainable food production, local regenerative mm -hmm. systems, things like that. Um, and now we're trying to kind of develop this network of people, mostly in the United States, but also around the world. Uh, and, you know, we're starting to get to the point where we're starting to meet up, like, you know, regionally, we're having like bioregional meetups meet later this summer, um, where, nice. you know, basically 
you know, in each in each region that there's somebody who, who can host, people are, are showing up, maybe spending a couple of days helping them with various projects around their homestead mm-hmm. or, you know, whatever, you know, whatever they happen to be working on. Um, mm-hmm. And, yeah. you know, when you were talking about the educational component and um, of, of moral imaginings, you know, one one kind of vision that I have, it's not my vision. I mean, a lot of people have talked about this, but this idea of like creating these bioregional field schools where mm-hmm. basically people are are learning on site right mm-hmm. they're you know they're they're basically they're building barns they're you know barn raising. They're, they're barn raising right mm-hmm. they're they're learning how to develop water systems and energy systems and, and food systems um you know as part of that. the education like they're actually on site building it as part of their yeah. education and then you know and then of course the other component is well when you re- release people out in the world with that kind of experience you know what are they going to do do they have access to land something about land accessibility and and mm-hmm. the larger political economy components um and so i'm thinking you know when we're talking about, we're talking about moral imagining and wanting it to be iterative and responsive to feedback um mm-hmm. uh, i guess how would you you know how would you help help us kind of think about developing these, say, for example, these field schools or these meetups, right? Mm -hmm. In in terms of, you know, not just, um, uh, I guess, I guess not just kind of moving automatically, you know, based on our preconceptions, but like more, you know, a bit more formal process of like, how do we re-envision what's possible here, right? How how can we cast aside assumptions that are no longer valid, but also still be, um, you know, still be tied to to the real biophysical world and the necessities of that. Mm-hmm. So a couple of provocations I think I would start by making. I think um, one of the aspects of this imagination piece that I think is really interesting to bridge with a lot of this very like deep design and redesign and re-envisioning work that is happening on a local scale and like we're also doing work with like local communities and local councils and a borough in London to implement like imagination practices and um and systems like systemic redesign in place but I think like one of the interesting provocations is to is to really think about the next 10 years and the sort of numbers of people that will soon be mm. like leaving cities, leaving existing systems, like that crumbling that I that is already happening and is only going to increase. And to really challenge ourselves by saying, like, what would that field school system look like designed for a hundred million people? Like just to already start there. And I know that I I also I've come from um, spending a lot of time in in kind of deep ecology circles and Schumacher College and um, like eco design circles and there's there's a kind of knee jerk reaction to scale and it's always like scale doesn't matter like it's about creating the you know the small kind of acupuncture points which I I also love I think there's a lot of wisdom in the acupuncture point model that you know it doesn't have to be 100 million people to make change you can really make change using this butterfly effect um and you know holonic fractal theories of of uh, change but i think that's the place i would start is like going back to that piece about like massive ambition in science and how much that can really help breed radical collaboration because when we're when we're in sm- too small an ambition the kind of squabbling and um you know like governance issues and conflicts sink so many projects and you and we saw that in extinction rebellion as well which i i've worked Mm -hmm. with on their governance and kind of self-organizing systems that in the first like year of extinction rebellion the systems worked really well like they didn't actually need a huge amount of like process and conflict resolution and like governance design and and all of this um more like horizontal collaboration stuff that i i consult groups and organizations on like when there was just urgency and focus and like scale of ambition people just made it work they were just like you know what i trust you let's move forward like that kind of i find that very interesting and i don't think it's talked about enough um that when we when we kind of scale our ambition Mm. trust seems to increase because there's a sense of like shared alignment and purpose so that would be like a starting point for me is like can we radically scale the imagination and the ambition of what you're talking about, because actually like we know that it's going to be needed 
And if we already start by thinking, if you start by designing for like 10 people, then you can always iterate and prototype and grow. Mm. Um, the danger is, is that a lot of projects like start there and kind of slow down because they don't start with that larger ambition. Um, somebody told me recently that in carpentry, a pilot hole is like the kind of hole that you make in, in wood with the intention of creating a bigger hole in the, in the pilot hole. And just an interesting metaphor of like, yeah, most, most projects start as just like staying, they, they stay as pilot holes. Like you never, we never see that kind of radical, radical scaling. So that's, that's one piece. And I'm kind of curious to hear how that lands for, for you and, and what does that bring up for you? Yeah. Well, I guess the other failure mode on the other side is having two large ambitions, but no pragmatic way to get there, no first steps. Yeah. And you become immobilized because it's like, oh, I need to build structures for millions of people. Well, you know, I don't know how to do that. So I'm just going to stay in my bed and play video games. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That, we also don't want that. We right. want the And so world. it seems like you're, what you're describing is kind of this balance of like, yeah, think big. Uh, but, you know, have uh, a very clear idea of where to start, you know, how to and where to start small. But with yeah. the addition of, you know, don't limit your imagination to that small thing. But also, mm -hmm. you know, you should maybe limit your pragmatic, your practical kind of just logistical planning, say, early on to to that smaller scale idea. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, I also wanted to bring up real quick this idea, you know, of scale, you know, and we've all, we often talk about scale and this difference between large scale and broad scale. Mm -hmm. right? exactly. and, and, and I think, and I think just, just based in the circles that you're around that, that you're thinking in terms of kind of like broad scale networks that, mm -hmm. you know, it's like, it's like, you know, you don't want to just build a lifeboat for you and your friends when, you know, everyone's, you know, everyone yeah. else can come and jump on it and the whole thing's going to sink but what does it mean to build a million lifeboats mm -hmm. you know, or, or, yeah. or a billion eight person lifeboats? Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, that's, and that's basically a networked, you know, a, a, a network of, of, of small scale systems that, you know, are human scale, but mm -hmm. you look at the aggregate, it's actually pretty large scale. It's like an emergent large scale. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, exactly. I was about to say that the kind of paralysis, I think the deep paralysis mode comes from realizing that you don't have to do it alone, that that kind of ambitious scaling can just make you think like, okay, so we know that Joe Brewer is doing this down in Colombia. We know this, you know, we know all these people that are doing this in some form. How do we connect together to actually like 10 X what all of us are doing? So it's like not stopping there and, and really thinking at that scale. And I find like, maybe it's a scientific mind thing that like, I find once I see like numbers on a, on a page of like, oh, okay. Like this is kind of the number that is realistic in terms of what we can expect in the next five to 10 years that can like really help me raise my ambition um, and kind of get out of that paralysis of like, oh, I don't know how many people and how big and how do I do this? It's like, okay, we can just break this down. Like how do you engage a hundred thousand people? Like which networks are already engaged engaging a hundred thousand and breaking it down like that. Um, but I also appreciate that's not, that's not the way everybody works. Um, but I do, yeah, I think that's a really important distinction is the scaling across rather than scaling up. And I um, can't remember, like, I think it's Meg Wheatley who also talks a lot about this of like, yeah, the horizontal scaling, which is a lot more present in biomimicry as well. The kind of, mm -hmm. yeah, copy, copy, paste, copy, paste across. Yeah. Um, and then on the other piece, the other question you had around moving between imagination and building um, I think that's a very interesting question in the context of like local building with like physical materials, because also there is a slow, I guess there, there's an inherent slowness to when you're working with nature, with permaculture, with building structures, with, you know, we're on in the software world, it can be a very, very fast, like iterative cycles and keep on shifting and changing. And I guess we can move on to talking a bit about DAOs and, mm -hmm. and like, um, kind of DAO design, but yeah, in the in the place of permaculture and working with nature, it's like how to how much can you um like how how fast can that iteration really be? Um, and how much is it about also just slowing down into the rhythms of of how you're yeah, kind of working with nature? Um I think 
So in moral imaginations, the practices and exercises we've developed are about shifting perspective. Um, so we talk about re-indigenizing, which I think, again, is quite quite in, um, present in the kind of back to land, eco-village, uh, eco-centers movement, um, really developing this imaginative muscle to look through the eyes of the other. So through the eyes of other people, through the eyes of like the non-human world and we see ourselves as prototyping the kinds of practices that could become relevant in 10 years when rights of nature takes off um, for real. Because right now it's like we're seeing just the beginning of the rights of nature movement and a couple of rivers have been given personhood. But when you actually scale that that um, future forward and you imagine what it's like to actually have governance systems that represent the land and represent rivers and mountains and actually bring that back into our governance systems it's really difficult to make the jump between the governance and the legal side and the actual like decision-making part, because we as um, like Western people who are totally disconnected, most of us are, are disconnected in terms of spirit, mind, body, um, and feeling from, a th for, from nature, from actually feeling like nature is a being and has like a, a, a will or like a, a sort of animistic um desire or even if it's like a collectively projected animistic um personhood like developing that muscle of being able to connect with nature through imagination through um introspection through you know what gregory bateson calls ecology of mind being able to actually sense into that and make more informed decisions from that place like i find that fascinating and like completely under-researched um and very you know on the edges of what would be considered like a a scientific like psychological research field but that's um that's sort of where we are and we do the same with future generations as well which helps expand time perspectives so again like exercises and practices that enable people to imagine they step 200 years into the future and look through the eyes of a seventh generation being and again drawing on the indigenous concept of seven generation thinking how can we practice and re-indigenize the way that we actually see the world and um and and make our values clearer through the practice of introspection and collective introspection collective meditation collective um sense making practices nice. yeah that's great um just to jump in and kind of uh i guess link with some of the things i mean you you mentioned a lot of great stuff that you know we could spend hours on this but uh i mean daniel walls uh designing regenerative cultures book i mean that was one of my first things that really kind of opened my you know eyes on a lot of things but then i guess I, instead of focusing on culture um uh stephanie lip was on you know earlier with jason and ashley and she and you guys talked about not exactly like a big tent but then you know uh making you know wormholes through constellations of different people and i thought that was a super interesting thing but i guess mm -hmm. what i really want to ask you because you have it in your your twitter profile is culture change through systems narratives and imagination activism kind of talked about imagination activism and and culture change but I, as a filmmaker and a podcaster etc like the narrative you know I, I think is a huge huge you know way to storytell to get uh buy-in you know a lot of those things so maybe not just talking about like what can you know tumor optimism consultancy you know narration look like uh but then also maybe talk about your experience because i loved the impossible train story that you guys did you know a cool animation uh, uh you know about uh very all the things that we're kind of talking about so can you just kind of maybe talk a little about about you know narrative storytelling and kind of how to get that you know maybe uh uh linkage you know between all these kind of things that we keep talking about okay. Yeah, we, we're some kind of like intangible designers that that are largely focusing on this upstream part of like the physical reality, um, but also find it very important to to not, yeah, I guess going back to the beginning of our conversation, like the the physical part and iterating and and continuing to have that loop is is really really important, um, and the reason we think it's really important to start at the level of imagination is because if you just start at the level of narratives and stories you might try and change the narratives and stories, but if you haven't shifted your perception, if you haven't actually shifted the way like epistemology and the way of seeing the world, and this is where people like Nora Bateson's work comes in really relevant as well, like how we can actually shift the way we see 
um, all the way down to the level of like being aware of um, our propensity to create, um, to reduce reality into objects and like even just like even that and even the fact that our language uh, systems are largely focused on using nouns compared to more, you know, indigenous languages that are, have a higher frequency of verbs. So there is this deeper level of perception that I think if you start at that level and shift there, then the narratives and the stories, like you open up a whole new space of how you even tell stories, not just the content of the stories. Um, And so the impossible train story was really about creating this mass participatory imagination exercise that could help people make sense of the pandemic in a different way. Um, Because so much of the pandemic, when, when the pandemic hit, so much of what was going on was this kind of urgent, like warlike metaphors and like language around like, how are we going to like fight the pandemic? And um, yeah, there was, there was a lot of this like urgent fixing solution focused language. And so what that video was trying to do was to actually take people on a journey where rather than telling them the new narrative or the new story, it created an imagination exercise where they could touch in with themselves, go deeper, shift the way they see the world and then come up with their own narratives and stories to decide um, what is possible out of the pandemic. Um, but I'm, I'm definitely like somewhat jaded about like the pandemic. And I think, I mean, I always remind myself like to, to remember that we're just in this like very short time scale in terms of how far we can see and what we can see the impacts were of the pandemic, but it felt like such a, like both such an extremely exciting and also like, you know, very traumatizing and, and yeah, very painful time for, for a lot of people, but there was I, I felt like there was a real tear in in the like business as usual reality fabric and this little glimpse of like what what else is possible. And it's interesting to see how many new projects there are in the space of imagination and storytelling like since the pandemic, because I think people saw through the um, it's almost like if you're like in the theater and then like the back of the theater like tears and you see that actually like it's just a stage and you're like oh wait like this is we're this is just a stage we're just all like acting and we could just act a different way um so yeah i'm a little I, i'm fighting that sense of disappointment about like how little has happened and how much we're kind of going back to business as usual but i do see this massive shift like i see a big shift happening around the story of climate like since coming out of the pandemic i'm really noticing in the last six months. And I'm just catching myself saying, um, coming out of the pandemic when actually like it's ongoing and like never ending. (laughs) So that's like an interesting narrative as well in itself. Um, but, but at least, you know, as collective consciousness lets go of the pandemic or on dominant media systems reports less on it, um, I am noticing a different kind of texture of response to climate change. Um, And I'm just recalling a conversation with my dad a couple of weeks ago. And he was saying like, you know, I was thinking about Extinction Rebellion and I think they might be right. And I'm really glad that they did what they did. And I just thought it was very interesting to, like that was very unexpected. Um, And there are quite a few conversations that I, I keep happening with people who previously were not that you know, engaged or or kind of tapped into climate and um, kind of climate emergency. Um, but I think with, yeah, there's this, there is a sense of these um, repeating uh, kind of crises, like the heat waves are coming now after the pandemic. And I think it's becoming impossible to ignore. So that's both extremely depressing and exciting for, you know, for those of us who have been like working in this field for like 10 years or more um i i sense that something is shifting but it's it's likely just like the first of you know hundreds of of shifts and yeah there's going to be a lot of ups and downs in that i'm curious the the name of the podcast is doomer optimism so it's kind of topical um <laughs> it's like a topical theme um and and i was just like somebody sent me this podcast i recorded in 2018 it was like titled like apocalypse and i was like huh um and around that time i i like coined this phrase of doom porn and like the the danger of like doom porn of like you know becoming kind of hooked on these narratives of apocalypse and 
yeah, this this kind of addiction to the really apocalyptic um, descriptions of the future, um, which now feels like really irrelevant because I really feel like that's um, that's where we're at. So curious what you think. Yeah, I think for a lot of people, as you're describing, the pandemic is when things started feeling real. I mean, I think mm-hmm. for older millennials, the 2008 financial crisis already mm-hmm. hit that. Um, and then, of course, you know, Trump getting elected and, you know, that that also was a shock to the system of many. Um, and but it, it seems like now we're we're, we're, we're achieving we're, we're going to a phase, you know, an exponential when people talk about exponential collapse. Uh, we're hitting a phase where where it's starting, you know, early on in exponentials, doesn't feel like much is happening, right? It's there's still mm-hmm. you're still on kind of yeah. that part of the curve, but then it starts, you know, the acceleration starts accelerating, and it seems like we're starting to hit that moment where we're coming out of the pandemic, and now we're in kind of uh, a food crisis, global food crisis, mm-hmm. a global energy crisis. Um, you know, a, a lot of maybe our industrial systems are are starting to buckle, um, <clears throat> and you know, the name of the podcast is is kind of this acknowledgement that, hey, we, we need to kind of like start with sober eyes, right? Just, you know, how, you know, let's, let's be realists, right? Let's mm-hmm. just stone cold facts, like what's, what's happening? Um, it looks like, you know, we've, we've been perpetuating unstable systems for decades and, you know, you can't do that forever and, and the bill is coming due. But as you say, you know, just uh, fetishizing doom porn and apocalyptic you know, kind of imagery doesn't doesn't really do anybody any good, right? Mm. It, it just makes people depressed, suicidal, fatalistic, um, uh, all of these things that are actually self-fulfilling prophecies. And so mm-hmm. the doom optimism part is like, okay, like if we acknowledge that, um, let's say we're in uh, a collapsed phase of civilization, or, mm-hmm. you know, I, I like the, the panarchy kind of systems dynamics model of like, we're in the back loop and there's a release, um, and we can grieve about that because there is going to be a lot of collateral damage. There already has been a lot of collateral damage, you know, and there has been for centuries, you know, for indigenous cultures all around the world. Um, uh, but it's catching up, it's catching up with everybody. Uh, what does it mean to then, um, you know, grieve, but also see, see it as an opportunity, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, see it as an opportunity to reimagine, um, yeah. you know, uh, new things that are possible because the, the dominant systems are the, the 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 gravity holding us to the dominant systems is weakening, right? And mm-hmm. so that can lead to very, very nasty, very apocalyptic outcomes, and it probably will in many parts of the world. But it can also lead to new experiments in mm. being. Um, and and how can we, you know, how can we help shift towards that ladder, you know, that ladder option for for you know many of us as possible, right? Mm-hmm. And when you created the podcast and called it Doomer Optimism, was there any fragment of your being that believed that there was any other future possible than the kind of cata- catastrophic civilizational, at least semi-collapse? Um, not really. It wasn't so much of whether collapse was happening. I think most of us kind of think that it is happening. It's more of like, what does that mean or what could it mean? Mm-hmm. So you can think of collapse in terms of, you know, apocalypse and, and, and everybody dies a fiery death, or you can think of it as collapse, meaning that our current life support systems that we've grown complacent with and are unsustainable mm-hmm. are, yeah. are not long for this world, you know, are, are being pulled out from under us. And so what can that mean in terms of um, developing alternative systems? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in, in a, for example, a much lower energy, linear throughput, materials throughput way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, or in a more regenerative way. Um, yeah. You know, a, a lot of things in, in, in kind of the collapse of systems become possible that weren't possible before. And so what, mm-hmm. can, what is possible? Can we lean into that? Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm sure, you know, the apocalypse mo- means like both crisis and opportunity or like breaking dawn, I think is like the, mm-hmm. yeah, something yeah. in the etymology. So yeah. 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 Was this podcast created not that long ago? Was it like a couple of years ago? Um, the fall, right? I, I was big on you guys when I came uh, in September, Jason, for you guys to get it going. Yeah. <laughs> so we started I don't know. with the series on the STOA. Um, oh, right. That's right. And, yeah. you know, that was around the time that um, Ashley and I were starting to know each other. And and then 
another friend suggested a podcast, uh, Tress suggested a podcast. And yeah, Nick, Nicholas, you were, you were kind of, uh, you know, a believer, an early, an early believer in the vision. Um, oh, yeah. that, was, nice. that was very encouraging. So it's, it's still pretty new. And I think we're still pretty nascent in terms of, you know, we've had like 50 some conversations or almost 60 at this point. Um, but in terms of actually now this kind of online community becoming more embodied, you know, meeting up in real life, developing real yeah, life projects. Yeah, I think we're still at the very kind of, you know, early stages of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's really great. And it's mainly in the US, but could be further afield. Yeah, it's it's mainly in the US. Most of the people that just we've happened to connect with are in the US. But, um, you know, it, there's uh, there's some further afield as well. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Like Ashley, for example, I mean, she lives in Uruguay, right? And she's been you know active in, in communities in Uruguay for a long time. Um, nice. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's the idea is is basically a lot of it is just connecting with people who, are, who have already been in these spaces you know, what I call OG Doomer Optimists for a long time, right? And, and it's, it's not like we're reinventing the wheel. Um, it's just kind of like a new, you know, a new burst of energy in, in this direction. And and so it's, it's it's connecting with a lot of the people who've been doing it for a long time. Maybe that maybe they become a little bit uh, uh, burned out or uh, disaffected. And, and it's like, hey, like, you know, let's, 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 re let's um, keep the energy going. Um, yeah. So, yeah. 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 I have this like strange um, contradiction of feeling both like at the beginning of a very long journey of this kind of work and also like tired and kind of burnt out, like yeah. done with it. I'm like, mm -hmm. you know what, like nine years of like running full pelt at, at this system is, is intense. Um, and so, yeah, it's also about knowing like when and how to cycle in and out and and like yeah what nourishes you and a lot of the work of like adrian marie brown is very relevant here like her her stuff around like pleasure activism and how do you kind of bring joy into into these movements where you're literally staring into the abyss yeah. fighting the current system you know being sabotaged in all, all sorts of ways like it's it's intense yeah. um yeah it's not something like i spend a lot of time talking about but i do think it, it's important to talk about probably more than than it currently is um, one thing that we emphasize is that uh there, there's a an interesting confluence of what's necessary uh and, and what's actually regenerative you know kind of on a cycle spiritual level right mm. for example learning to grow your own food you know having a garden um i think you know, we need like 100x times more just gardens in the world, right? Just backyard yeah. gardens, right? Um, and yeah. that's, that's a very nourishing, you know, kind of spiritually, psychologically nourishing activity. Um, and so a lot of it is like, hey, like living more, you know, kind of uh, place-based, ecologically, you know, and culturally kind of focused lives, uh, mm -hmm. it actually feels really good. Right. Yeah. And so a lot of, you know, for, you know, a lot of people, it's, you know, the, the lead in isn't, hey, you know, climate change is happening, ecological collapse, you know, peak, peak oil, whatever it is, you know, uh, political decay. It's like, hey, this is actually a really nice, you know, uh, lifestyle. We should make it uh, available for more people. Right. Yeah, yeah. totally. And yeah. And so I, I, think, I think for a lot of people, a lot of people respond more to more to that than, you know, than, than, hey, like, if you don't do this now, you're going to die. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Know your audience. Yeah. I was just, I mean, that's so related to imagination activism um, because I've worked with so many activists over this last uh, couple of years. And, and like a lot of them think that the way to build a movement is kind of shouting at people and hammering them with facts and guilt tripping them. And, you know, like even, even just like a few weeks ago, I was at an event with a big corporate who had brought in some young climate activists um, to kind of be at their event. And the climate activists had like an hour on the stage and they, they spent the whole time just basically being like, this is, you know, this is your fault. This is, you know, th these are the facts. Like, and it's like, if you're listening to that and you literally have no connection to climate change, like yet, I think there's like such a um, sophistication upgrade needed in terms of like narratives, imagination, like understanding how human beings 
make sense of realities and also a lot more empathy and compassion of like actually mm. putting yourself in the shoes of someone who hasn't had the privilege of, you know, whatever educational path it is or whatever family it is or whatever life path that has led like the three of us to actually have an awareness of what is going on and to kind of find our way out of the matrix um, see the gaslighting that is happening, you know, the level of media and advertising and like these huge amounts of manipulative um, forces that keep us blinded to what is actually happening in the world. Um, so I do feel there's a, there's a massive empathy gap there. And I think that's like really at the core of the imagination work as well. It's like, how can you help people like decolonize their imaginations and that's what this article um you mentioned um at the beginning nicholas is about it's about like how do we rewild the imagination like it's not it's not necessarily people's fault if they are in a lifestyle or in a in a set of mindsets and premises and um presuppositions that are keeping them not caring about the planet like it's not like people are bad people that's why they they don't recycle like such a hum there's such a like empathy humanity gap i think when it when it comes to some of the, the kind of activist movements and people who are intent on like changing people's minds rather than understanding why they are in that kind of life and set of you know decisions that they've made um which you know there's that really well-known phrase of like walk walk a, a lifetime and somebody's shoes and you'll make the same decisions as as they would make so really coming from that starting point i think can completely change the way that we interact with people in our movements nice is there something also to be said uh, i think jason brought it up a little bit and you've touched on it is like trust i mean definitely there's an empathy gap but then also you know a trust gap of like you know who kind of uh it seems like um when you're working next or, you know, when you live next to someone, there's almost this like uh, understood trust or uh, kind of things when you're working with someone, et cetera. But then it's, it's very difficult to kind of trust if say um, temporality, like age or distance or et cetera. And that's kind of maybe the promise of some of the new kind of technological fixes, if you will, like decentralized autonomous organizations, DAOs, mm -hmm. uh, web three, you know, that, it seems like that's kind of the underlying uh, narrative or, or even in the heart baked into the hardware. So I don't know if you kind of want to kind of riff on some of that, because I think that'd be a good, like, um, at least talking point, but then at the same time, uh, maybe not to the effect that it goes, I guess, maximalist, because like we were just talking about is like being, you know, connected to like the land or connected to people, et cetera. And then, you know, you have kind of some of the, uh, uh, groupings or people like in the space, like Balaji, I don't know if you've seen the, the, his new book, the network state, you know, trying to basically yeah. just, you know, make a state out of thin air, which like it, there's the definitely wants and desires of that. You know, the nations, uh, Jason and I have talked about the nation state, you know, <laughs> as, as in its current iteration being kind of going out the, by the wayside, but then how do we kind of like thread that needle or kind of do the tension in between of utilizing the products uh, that, you know, is are available to us. Um, but then also, kind of keeping our eye on some of the values that, you know, we, we've just been talking about, especially like the, uh, the trust, you know, that's, a, that's a huge thing. I think that would be interesting to kind of talk about. Yeah. So trust is such an interesting one because, you know, trust is a noun, um, but trust is not a thing. Trust is not really thingifiable. Um, and I think that is at the heart of the tension, but like I have around, um, these kind of trustless, you know, like the Tao reality of just like, we can have, like, we can make full trust and like almost kind of automating trust. Um, when trust is a dance, like trust mm. is really the more I trust you, potentially the more you will behave in a way of trust. So like, it's not, it's not a thing. It's, it's an alive, it's a relational thing. Mm. Um, and it, and it's very interesting, like when trust, you know, you, you don't always know when trust is there, but you know, when it's not there. And it's like, <laughs> like one of these, like very, it's an interesting phenomenon. Um, and like on the other side, you know, there's a lot of criticism of this idea of like automating trust in, in digital blockchain based systems and DLT, like distributed ledger systems. Um, and one of the common arguments is like, 
if we just automate trust, then, you know, we'll live in a dystopian reality where like nobody needs to trust each other anymore. And it's like the ultimate libertarian atomized individualistic um, Mm. reality, which I can see um, the truth in. And yet from my interactions, like within DAOs and and like blockchain based communities, like I've I've definitely experienced like very deep community in those places. Um, but meanwhile, you can have like these you know dark DAOs. Like you know you could have you can have DAO. It enables. It's like it's always everything. It's like that film that's right. just come up everything everywhere all at once. It's like every time I'm asked a question, I'm just like it's everything. Like it's you can have, you can experience both. It's all about how we use our tools. It's not about the tools themselves. And my criticism of the criticism of of DAOs is that currently we're putting, we have to put our trust into government or we have to put our trust into monopolistic corporations. Like when I pay somebody I don't know, I trust Visa to be the middleman of that, um, that transaction. So, so trying to pretend that like currently we're in like a you know, a, a totally trustful way of living and that moving to DAOs would like automate that out is also not, it's not accurate. Um, and so there's, there's this question, I guess, of, I think it also, again, comes down to scale because if we're in a village, you know, village context and setting trust will be, um, mediated in a very different way, like through gossip, through these kind of like protocols that work on the scale of like hundred, 150 people, um, if we decide that we do need the, you know, these systems that scale to like hundreds of thousands, millions of people, um, then in terms of design, there does need to be an abstraction of trust. And that is currently sitting in a certain way. And, and I guess the, the proposal of the, of, of DAOs and, and kind of network states and societies is to mediate that in a way that gets rid of, um, a certain kind of centralized power, but actually just transfers it to a different kind of centralized power. So it's a decision, I think, um, yeah. which kind of centralization do we want? Because blockchain based systems are not decentralized. Like I, I find that one of the biggest like yeah. double think um, phenomena of the whole, right. the whole scene. It's like, why your do actions we- are recorded forever on an immutable ledger. That, that's so <laughs> decentralized. <laughs> so decentralized. And like, also like whales you know if you have more computing power like it's just not decentralized um i don't know what what's going on with that like why when when are we going to have that conversation um in a slightly more realistic way uh yeah i remember in like some of the the kind of early day workshops in um at, like around ethereum governance like i was i was part of a group that was doing like the legal and governance design for um with the ethereum foundation and yeah like at the heart of that was like we want this to be decentralized and ultimately it isn't and how do we you know how do we create systems that can kind of separate out the plutocracy based system from the from like a more democratic system and there are you know there are a lot of mechanisms being prototyped and created to do that like i have no doubt that the DAOs and um and these kind of mechanism design that is happening in that space is is really important even if we're not at a place right now where any of it looks like really ideal for for kind of societal design um i was having a conversation with kia from gnosis recently and talking about like what is the what is the kind of sell of like DAOs and blockchain and crypto to to people who are really not engaged in that space and actually like highly critical and suspicious um, and kind of cynical. And I thought she said something really interesting, which was like, actually it's the imagination potential of like even allowing people the, like giving people the ability to imagine a different economic system or a different coordination system, like even just the ease with which you could create like a multi-sig wallet, like that's already such a huge imagination um kind of window opener because it's like just enables people to think like how would my life be different like how how could it be different if i could coordinate like really easily with my friends or like how would it be different if i could like trust somebody um you know in egypt and like immediately transfer the money without like any issues and any any kind of bank transfer um faff like even just on that basic level i think it's a highly useful experiment yeah 
there, there seems to be we're, we're, we're seeking out a barbell strategy of, on the one hand, recovering, I would say, traditional community life, right? Mm -hmm. Like we, a lot of us, um, you know, a lot of people talk about modernity, you know, this, this boogeyman of modernity, which, which, you know, um, there's definitely a lot of dark sides to it. Uh, and one being that it has atomized people, the, the state, uh, and corporations have kind of hollowed out civil society. Right. And yeah. so a lot of, you know, a, a lot of it, I think is just, we're going to have to recover, you know, pretty kind of traditional forms of, social interactions, um, not all traditional forms, right? Some some we might want to dispense with, uh, but, you know, at the same time, how do we coordinate that, you know, so we're not naive about larger scale game theory and political, geopolitical dynamics and all of these things. And this requires, you, you know, transnational mutual aid networks and all of these things. And so, it and yeah, I know like in the doomer optimism sphere, we're definitely, we definitely fall more on the skepticism side of, these technologies, like it's kind of like we're, we're, we're maintaining openness and like curiosity, or at least I'm, I'm, I'm trying to do that. But at the same time, you know, we're like, okay, the network state, uh, Balaji, you know, with your archipelago of physical localities that don't have any kind of accountability to, to democratic processes there just sounds like multinational corporations 2.0. Like yeah. are you the new elite who has no accountability to anybody, but your, your global network and you're not right. embedded in real, you know, um, eco cultural processes. Uh, no, <laughs> thanks. Right. And so it's like, uh, and so, so there's like this tension, you know, maybe there'll be some kind of synthesis here that'll be kind of healthy. Um, so mm -hmm. I think that's, mm -hmm. It seems like that's what we're all trying to, and, and, you know, and it's like a lot of people are like schizophrenic about it. It's like, it's either one or the other, right? Yeah. But like to hold both at the same time, to hold that tension uh, in your being at the same time, um, you know, is, is requires, you know, it, it's, it's hard, right? It requires kind of a, uh, a leap in, um, you know, some kind of, um, some kind of development. Uh, Okay, so we have about, uh, I know you have a time um, constraint here. Uh, you need to get going in a few minutes. Yeah, I've got a couple of yeah. minutes. I, I've got some thoughts to kind of wrap up. And I also yeah. think um, it's quite a nice jumping off point for a second conversation if we want to go more into like the DAO. Like I'd love to dig into this a little bit more because um, back in like 20, 2015, I remember like discovering um i was trained by joanna macy in 2016 which in a way she could sit as like an archetype of like the most eco like kind of e ecological warrior buddhist activist california like 90 year old badass hippie um and i just come from like craig venter's lab in silicon valley and i was like right. whoa like this gradient yeah is really intense this is like yeah. jumping to like a arctic ice pool from the desert um and i i had this dream of like could there be could could i like somehow wrangle and i still i still want to do it like sometimes i i have these like ideas and then like six years later i'm like oh yeah like maybe it's time to do that i feel like this this should happen um of bringing together like joanna macy and like elon musk for a conversation and just like just to have the conversation, just to break the like impossibility of that conversation. Because um at least and I, help heal the rift in our own minds, even if they don't agree. It's like our own <laughs> mind, you know, it would be like everyone else would be watching it with like uh, like uh, it'll be like a healing process for everybody because right now it's, it's so schizophrenic. <laughs> exactly. yes, their own their own shadows against each other, you know. <laughs> yeah. Some kind of integration, exactly. And I think um for Doomer Optimism, I would be super interested like i feel like some of the things that took me into solar punk and to like really associate with solar punk was that gradient and that that need for some kind of holism and some kind of integration between these different parts of myself which were like technology is great we need technology ecology is great we need ecology why are these groups like so not even in conversation like there are values here that they share and it's interesting that i've then ended up working in imagination and values which almost goes into like a meta kind of integration space but kind of riffing off that i feel like for doomer optimism it would be really interesting to sketch out some um like design tensions like often in 
in systems mm-hmm. design, um, there's there's a practice that I like to use where you like, you know, you have like two poles, um, like, you know, in the crudest sense, it could be like techno-utopianism and like deep ecology. And then you've got the ability to be like, where are we on this, on this tension? And like, how do we move between the two? And how do we like reach integration? Because I think that's probably one of the biggest like risk factors of of any movement is that they end up like just falling into the fractionization and kind of tribalism and further like lack of integration of society and different tribes. So like sketching out some of those tensions and making sure that you find ways to embed the movement between the two, I think would be really interesting from the systems design perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I also want to, we have this kind of you know, we see ourselves as kind of a collective and, and one kind of heuristic that we have is, you know, if we have people who we've interviewed um, uh, or co-hosted, uh, Nicholas, you know, if if you also want to host conversations on this platform, um, you know, it's available to do that. Uh, and so, for example, if you wanted to host a conversation with one of us, uh, you know, outlining um, this kind of thinking process, this, this mm-hmm. kind of, you know, integrating our psychologies, Mm. Um, that would be really interesting. Or if there was somebody, you know, that you felt um, you, you really want to talk to or, or have, you know, you have to go, um, you know, no, I love it. Yeah. You really want to have a conversation. I'm email to Elon Musk right now. <laughs> okay. okay. Yeah. Well, I'm, you, well, I'm in regardless. So. You Elon Musk on, on doomer optimism. You're welcome <laughs> to. <laughs> wow. I'm just or like, you want to have Elon and Joanna, you know, yeah. uh, host conversation on Doomer Optimism. You're welcome. I, I I really like that. I feel like as a kind of impossible mission for for this next decade, I'm like I'm going to put it on my bucket list. Um, or put it, yeah, see if anybody else listening might be able to wrangle it. We can put it on our like collective bucket list. There we go. Cool. Fantastic. All right. Great. Well, we'll let you go. We're a minute. We're a minute past your 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 time constraint, so we'll let you go. Okay. Um, Thank but, you. Yeah, we'll we'll do this again. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. For- Thank you.